Welcome to the Unretired English Major Podcast, a virtual space to talk about literature, culture, and the contemporary American life. I'm the host, Dan Namaka, former English major and current English teacher. Today I'll be discussing part one of Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon. Hello, welcome to the first episode of the Unretired English Major Podcast. Today we are hopefully going to be talking about part one of Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow. But first, I feel as though to commemorate this very first episode, I need to maybe talk a little bit about, not so much myself, but what this podcast is, maybe where I want it to go, what I want it to be. I, I can't start a podcast in 2023 without feeling as though I'm doing something incredibly cliche and trite. Um, It is such a basic thing in our world right now to make a podcast and expect people to listen. And in all honesty, I do not expect almost anyone to listen to this. This is merely just a space for me to talk about literature to share my ideas about literature because this podcast titled the unretired english major podcast is a space where i can become an english major again Uh, as the introductions kind of stated i have a degree in english literature i am currently studying to become an english teacher and while i have realized rather quickly that I I deeply enjoy talking about literature and maybe putting on that lecture hat and chatting and sharing knowledge or thinking about literature. Um, I very much miss the opportunity to study literature in depth. I miss the motivation of grades to take a book apart. I miss the opportunities to discuss books with other people in class. I miss working with faculty and academics. I just really miss being in the classroom. And I know this podcast is no replacement for the the learning opportunities that come out of a classroom. It is a space for me to just selfishly indulge in what I really love, which is is talking about literature and thinking about how meaning is made and how uh, literature represents the world in which we live in. So with that said, um, today we are starting with Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon. And as I've been preparing for this podcast, I have realized that this is much more difficult than I had imagined. I kind of, when I was planning on starting a podcast and then I was thinking about beginning with Gravity's Rainbow, I was like, oh, it'll be super easy. Like, it'll be a great place to start because it's such a complex book that I, I'm really intrigued by and it'll be such a great space for me to read the book, develop a deeper knowledge about it and have an outlet to where I can share my ideas and really work through things and really go head to head with this book. Um, And while I have really enjoyed reading it, 
the second time through and I've really enjoyed uh, I've really I feel as though I've taken a lot out of the novel that I, I entirely missed the last time I read it and I, I feel relatively confident that I understand what's going on it is incredibly difficult to talk about and I I think that is first and foremost because it is told in such a unique way it is such a unique novel and it's such a postmodern novel that it is almost nearly impossible to talk about in a standard way I, I, I do believe that criticism with this novel kind of has to take a very different approach if you're going to fully grasp everything that's going on and just trying to trying to go at a novel like this from a very clear-cut literary criticism structure is just not going to end well it just kind of goes in circles and it leaves you kind of confused and by literary criticism there i mean like a, a standard culturally accepted way of talking about books and movies and narratives but um it's a doozy. It's, it's a very difficult book to talk about. And even though I am relatively confident that I know what's going on and I, I have these ideas about what I want to say, it is incredibly hard to vocalize that, to make it come out of my mouth in ways that feel logical and connected and clear. And so I want to take a moment before I truly begin to deal with this book to apologize for perhaps the amount of times in which I will be pausing or the times in which my thinking might go circular or the amount of times in which I might start a sentence and then change that sentence midway through as the author in this podcast i do reserve the right to change how i'm speaking change what i'm saying um in order to best express myself but i do i recognize that that makes it a little bit harder to listen along not that i expect anyone to really be listening to this but um if you are i just ask that you bear with me and maybe show some kindness because this is very difficult not that you wouldn't but that is my request so before i begin probably talking about the actual scope of the novel talking about the summary of the novel i want to provide some context for my discussion so first so i'm going to go over a little bit about the historical situation in which Gravity's Rainbow was written and published and received and then I'm going to talk a little bit about its legacy as a novel since it has been published as well as how I came to read this novel and become very fascinated by it. So Gravity's Rainbow is Thomas Pynchon's third novel and it was published in 1973 by Viking Press. Thomas Pynchon is an American author whom we know very little about, and from what we do know about him, he had published 
V in 1963. He had published The Crying of Lot 49 in 1966. He had very much, prior to the publishing of this novel, established himself as this up-and-coming thinker and writer of fiction with a very unique style and flair. But I think it's safe to say that no one was kind of anticipating a novel like Gravity's Rainbow to drop. And so when it was published in 1973, it was immediately reviewed as one of the longest, most difficult, most ambitious novels in years. And it immediately drew comparisons to James Joyce's You Masterpiece of Modernist Fiction, Ulysses, and Herman Melville's Masterpiece of 19th Century American Fiction, Moby Dick. Um, in the years since it has been published, it's become synonymous with postmodern fiction as a whole. It is often uh, it often is talked about having basically synthesized and emulated every single bit of postmodern fiction's gimmicks from unreliable narration to nonlinear storytelling to self-reflexivity to metafiction and many scholars purportedly regard it as being the greatest American novel published after World War II. I do want to spend some time talking about Gravity's Rainbow being discussed as the greatest American novel published after World War II. I personally don't know of very many people who have read this novel I'm not an academic, so that obviously means that there's a lot of personal ignorance and biases that play into this opinion, but I I don't know a lot of people who have read this novel, and I also don't know of a lot of scholars who would be inclined to think that this is the greatest American novel. Um, it is a very, as I, I'll discuss a lot more, it is a very male novel it's a very white american novel and i just with kind of the scope and the trend of literary criticism as an academic discourse since world war ii i i i have a hard time seeing this be kind of hailed as the pinnacle of american fiction i think there's a very select group of people who would agree that it's the pinnacle of American fiction, of American postmodernism. And I think a lot of people who probably study postmodernism professionally would say that this novel does hold and possess a lot of the literary techniques that have become synonymous with postmodernism. But I, I have a hard time believing that this is kind of viewed favorably within the academy i i have very high regard for this novel but in my from what i've seen i haven't seen a lot of criticism on it i haven't seen a lot of people who talk about it very often i just i just have a, i just get a general general sense reading it that it might not have the reputation that it seems to pronounce that it does. I, I think that this novel tends to be popular with certain groups of people, but I don't think that it's universally adored in the sense that some other authors of uh, some other contemporary authors might be. But it is it is a novel that does a lot. It's a novel that really does change 
what postmodernism and the novel are. It's a novel that is very, very important, I would say, in the canon of long and complex and extravagant American literature or literature, Western literature in general. And it is today a novel that if you purport to know something about literature, you kind of have to read it. You have to have an opinion on it and you are expected to respect it. I feel, I feel as though if you don't enjoy this novel or you don't appreciate what this novel's doing, not nearly as much as a novel like um, Ulysses or Moby Dick, but if you don't appreciate what's going on, if you don't respect it, if you don't understand it, um, then you're stupid <laughs> and you are not well read. So, th and this, so this novel does definitely gatekeep a lot. There's a lot of, a lot of usage of this novel in my experience within um, people with my experience with people who read literary fiction and who talk a lot about fiction and tend to give off this air that they know something about literary fiction that this novel is an expected torturous experience that you have to go through to prove something as well you have to prove something in terms of reading literature to begin with but that's besides the point um i think this is a really great time to kind of talk about maybe my experience of how i as a 21st century individual came upon this work and started reading it this because gravity's rainbow is not a well-known novel i've actually been quite surprised to learn that a lot of people don't know about it and it makes sense because i didn't know about it for a long time i didn't hear about this novel until my literary theory professor professor in undergrad made an offhanded comment one day about how he was reading um this book called gravity's rainbow and he was reading it for i believe the seventh time because it was his favorite novel and him being one of my favorite professors that i had during undergrad as well as probably the biggest influence on my decision to start reading in my personal life and start actively pursuing literature as a source of knowledge and intellectual stimulation i decided that if this was his favorite novel it was probably worth my time to read it so i put it on my list that i had been compiling of books that i wanted to read and i didn't really touch it for a long time because i was very much intimidated by it if you do a very simple wikipedia search you get all the information that i just shared with you and you kind of get this sense that this is a novel that doesn't make a lot of sense is really hard to read and is a timeless classic and being an undergrad at the time I, I don't think i was really prepared for it i was very intimidated by it and also it's really long it's 700 pages and i did not have the mental capacity to devote a significant chunk of my time to reading an incomprehensible 700 page text so 
I kind of put it off for a long time. And then one night, about a year later, I randomly had a dream about this novel. And the next day I went to Barnes and Noble and I bought the book and read the first hundred pages and did not know what was going on, was really confused. And I think as is relatively common with most people when they, when they first start reading this book, I lost steam. I just did not find, could not find the motivation to keep going. And also too, I was in the midst of a ton of classes that were taking up all of my time with required readings. So I just didn't really want to have time for it, but I also didn't really want to make time for it. So I put it aside. And then about six months later, I picked it up again and read the entire book in less than a week. I would sit at my desk in my apartment and read massive chunks at a time. There was a series of three days where I didn't do anything but read this book. And while that experience of reading it, this book in less than a week was something of a fever dream that I think suited the book well for the first time, for like for reading it for the first time, I, in all honesty, picked up very little. I remembered the iconic scenes that everyone remembers, and I had some really great moments with reading this book. I had some also like really awful moments reading this book, and I, for the most part, I, I couldn't really tell you much of what happened. And so, I mean, that was about a year ago that I read it for the first time, and in that time span since, um, this has just kind of been a book that I I have kept wanting to read. It's a book that I keep returning to. It's a book that I keep thinking about and reading sections of. I think part of that is due to the situation in which I first read it, um, just because I read it so quickly and so fast. I never really felt that I really gave this book the attention it deserved. And I wanted to, but I think it also comes to the fact that there is almost no piece of fiction that I have read since that has done anything similar to this. The easiest comparison is James Joyce's Ulysses, which I read a couple years ago and utterly hated, in all honesty. Um, and while I, and I respect, as all good readers do, what Joyce does in Ulysses. I'm not a fan of it myself. I, I found it incredibly boring and unrelatable to my life as a 21st century American. But so I feel like what I missed with Ulysses in terms of reading a book that was utterly incomprehensible, but incredibly deep and challenging and experimental I think I found that intention I think I found Joyce's I, th I think I found the humor the the weirdness the um, depictions of reality that I missed in Joyce intention and I mean thinking about fiction as a writer I I definitely really love his style. I like 
I am endlessly fascinated about how he writes sentences without subjects or verbs or um, any <laughs> related anything that is normal or standard. I'm really interested in how he tells jokes. I find him to be very funny. I find him to be very, um, I find his depictions of reality to be very satirical in nature, but also like very, with like really funny jokes and really funny punchlines, but also really great criticisms embedded in it. And I just kind of find his work to be something of of a fever dream, in all honesty. I, I think it's, it's fiction at its most maximum. It's fiction at fiction's extreme. And I don't know, there's just something about it that I, I really like. There's something about it that I kind of, I, I just kind of can't help but want to understand. And I think Pynchon's, especially in Gravity's Rainbow, I think Pynchon really really attacks this notion of what literature is. I think he really kind of goes at fiction and the enterprise of writing fiction and the enterprise of studying fiction or talking about fiction or making sense of fiction and the world in general. Um, I think he kind of attacks that head on. I think he deconstructs and destabilizes a lot of the things that we do to make sense of this world and while yeah there's, there's nothing that's really relatable in a lot of his fiction I think it's a really interesting intellectual game and it's it's fun to read it's fun to think about and it is it is funny it is generally very funny but I would like to also address though that there is very much a stereotype of young men like myself who study literature or and almost like worship writers who are incredibly male like Pynchon and David Foster Wallace and they like to use those authors as a way to um, let others know how smart they are and as a young male in my early 20s, I do understand that I do that, that I, I do hold up authors like Pynchon and Wallace on pedestals that they may or may not deserve. And I do understand how problematic and annoying that might be problematic in the sense that i think um holding up male authors as being geniuses promotes this really misogynistic view of genius that makes um intelligence male and white in its fullest capacity which i think is incredibly racist and misogynistic. And I also think that Pynchon and Wallace do both have very problematic aspects to the writing. Um, 
Wallace is very well documented with his mental health struggles, which as someone who does struggle with mental health themselves, I I truthfully do find to be a, a, brush of fresh air, a, a breath of fresh air within Wallace's fiction. Um, he's also been really well reported about how he has some very problematic interactions with women. And I think we need to address that. I think as readers, as a reader, I have a duty to understand the person on the other side of the work and maybe recognize some of their, um, some of the ideology that they hold that might be harmful to other groups of people. And it's the same with Pynchon. I think while we don't know much about Pynchon, I think his fiction does tell a story about how he views women, how he might view other races, and I don't know, it is, it is, it is concerning. I, I, I have to admit that I do read this fiction and, and have moments where I'm, I'm genuinely concerned about who Pynchon is, and I'm generally concerned about how this was published, how this was written, how this has been accepted as genius, and what that might be doing um, to our society by holding up this as the standard of genius. Um, but with that being said, I do think that as readers, we also have to kind of forget about the author on the side of the other side of the text. We have to stop assuming that authors are infallible, perfect human being, like perfect beings, that authors are going to, um, they're going to have things that are ugly about them. They're human. And as readers, I, I think that's what I love about talking about literature is I think we can approach a text and deconstruct the harmful aspects of it in ways that um, make our understanding of ideology and its harmful effects better. I think that can help us understand the world a lot more. And ultimately too, I, we don't have to approach these texts as being like a religious scripture. We don't have to treat them as perfect, um, divinely inspired texts that we cannot change. I think especially in the West, although we could make arguments and we could talk a lot about the continuing effects of religion in this modern world, we have inherited a, a literary tradition that is inspired predominantly upon the study of the Christian Bible. And as a result, I think we tend to approach philosophy and literature in a way where we assume that the text is perfect, the text is divine, the text is like has some element of this like higher order beauty in it and we have to treat it as such. And I don't think we have to do that. I think we, we have an opportunity to approach a text as the work of a human being that is going to be ultimately have some moments of beauty, but also have some things that we can work past and we can work through and we can identify as problematic and seek to correct. Um, 
that being said, I do think very highly of Pynchon and Wallace, predominantly because both of them write in a way that is unlike anything else I've ever read. They both have an incredibly unique voice, they have an incredibly unique style that is incredibly fun to read, is very challenging, but also too, they're both very personable, at least to me. I, I find both of them to be very personable. I see and hear a lot of them in their fiction, and I appreciate it. And with Pynchon in general, I think that he he does a lot of stuff that is is funny. He does a lot of stuff that is unique. And although I don't love the depiction of women, I don't love the absurd amounts of sex in this novel, there are a lot of moments that I underline, that I laugh at, out that I laugh at. I, I just, it's a fun read. And so to kind of jump into Gravity's Rainbow as a novel, um, I would probably like to begin with a discussion with kind of like laying a foundation about what this novel is about. So Gravity's Rainbow takes place in the final days of World War II. The novel as a whole is taking place in various parts of Europe, but in various times in Europe, but is for the most part taking place from 1944 to 1945 throughout Europe focus predominantly on English and American spies trying to counteract German engineering and intelligence. In particular, the novel is concerned with the V2 rocket, which is a self-propelled rocket that Germany had invented late in the war that kind of re- that kind of changed the the scope of the war. That kind of changed the basically changed how the war was being fought. This V two rocket was self propelled, so it could be fired from offshore, and it was the, it also traveled faster than the speed of sound. And this novel is very much concerned with this V two rocket as being a a silent, unseen, an unheard killer as being some form of like, I almost want to say like the type of, this type of threat that is very akin to the Christian God smiting people from heaven with fire. It's this type of threat that is, un you're unable to control, you're unable to predict, and you're unable to do anything about. And so we have this German V2 rocket. We have people obviously trying to win this war. And we have people trying to survive. People trying to make sense of what is, what has become a senseless and chaotic world. So we could call the main character of this book to be an American named Tyrone Slothrop. Slothrop, his his journey kind of is the center of much of what happens in this novel. And it is his special gift that kind of 
foregrounds and like a lot of the discussions on the V2 rocket. He's kind of treated as maybe a potential savior of Western civilization from this threat of this rocket. Um, and it's his kind of, him as a character kind of is the background in which a lot of the things kind of occur. But this novel famously does have 400 characters. And although Tyrone Slothrop is probably the main one that we're working with, um, he is he is really, when you're reading it, it doesn't really give off the, the vibes that he is the main character. He is just kind of one element of this wider drama that is playing out. Um, and so... Tyrone Slothrop, as I said, is an American li working, li living and working in Paris, working for the an intelligence agency titled ACTION, which stands for Allied Clearinghouse Technical Units of uh, Northern Germany. And the main focus of Slothrop's life is his sexual life, namely that he has a map in his office of London that is dotted with different colored stars with the names of women written on them. This map details his sexual conquests, I guess you could say, as well as um, how he felt about those conquests and the fact that it's hanging up in his workplace is problematic itself the, the fact that he is openly creating the map in the first place is says a lot about Slothrop as a character he's very he doesn't have much substance <laughs> he's very much a um a guy who just flies by the wing of his pants all the time which is what makes him so funny but he is he doesn't have much to him and so he has this map in his office and he, his job at this intelligence agency action is to go out to rocket disasters and to basically plot that it happened, to survey the debris, to make note of everything that occurs. And so he has, so as we come to find out, through other characters and other spies working in London. His map of London and all of his sexual conquests is an exact match to a map of London with all of the V2 rocket strikes charted on it. And so the novel kind of leads you to believe that Tyrone Slothrop's map and the V2 rocket kind of the V2 rocket strikes on London kind of begin at the same point in time and that Slothrop somehow is able to sexually predict where a rocket's going to strike. Um, it is noteworthy that all of his stars occur days before the rocket strikes and so there's this really big quest to kind of figure out how in the world is Slothrop, how is his sexual life connected to the falling of the V2 rocket? 
Um, as we come to find out within part one, we learn that he, as a child, had been a part of a psychological test run by a Dr. Laszlo Jamf, where he basically was conditioned to receive an erection whenever he heard loud noises. Um, and there is a lot of discussion within this novel that I will talk about later about Pavlovian psychology, about maybe the extent of how reflexes to stimuli can form, how they can last, um, what the implications of they might those might be. But for this basic discussion of Slothrop at this moment, we just need to know that he was a former patient of this Dr. Jamp and had learned to develop an erection whenever he heard a loud noise. Um, why they chose erections? They it is said this says in the book that they chose erections because it's an easy binary. You either receive an erection or you don't, um, which is, I, I, I do think that's kind of funny, but also kind of telling about our dependency on binaries to conduct science as well as to understand the world. That's besides the point. So we have Slothrop. He, he is somehow sexually predicting where these V2 rockets are going to fall, and it may or may not have a link to this psychological conditioning that he underwent as a baby where he received erections whenever he heard a loud noise. Um, it's The book itself is never really clear about the validity of this. There is one section that I did note where Slothrop has, is hanging out with this girl named Darlene and he's eating a bunch of British candy that's really gross. And they, him and Darlene end up sleeping together because Slothrop sleeps with almost everybody in this novel. And um, after they have sex, they're laying in bed, they're sleeping, and it's noteworthy that he has a limp penis in her vagina still. A bomb explodes at the hospital nearby and immediately Slothrop gets an erection and they start having sex. So there is kind of this hint within the novel that Slothrop does in fact have an ability to establish an erection when he hears a loud noise, that there's still some remnant of this conditioning that he underwent as a child. However, it I don't under fully understand myself how if if there's a link to his ability to predict the rockets because they're not so much concerned about whether or not Slothrop has the ability to establish an erection whenever he hears a loud noise that passage kind of shows that he does have that ability that he still has some remnants of that conditioning but that's not really the concern of the novel the concern of the novel is whether or not Slothrop can predict through his penis where the V2 rockets are going to strike. And that's kind of left up in the air. Personally, um, if we think about the V2 rocket as a, as kind of this 
entity that you can't see or hear. Um, it, it doesn't, I, I have a hard time seeing a connection um, because I mean, how personally, how could a, like how, like what connection could there be? It, it has to be chance. It has to, like, it, it would have to be chance because what connection between Slothrop's erections and these rocket strikes could there be? Um, but the people in this novel, well, one person in this novel really seems to believe that there is some connection between Slothrop's erections and what is in the sky. And this person is the Pavlovian psychologist Edward Pointsman. He works at the White Visitation in a department known as Pisces, which stands as the Psychological Intelligence Schemes for Expediting Surrender. Um, and so Pointsman, as a Pavlovian, he studies condition, he does, he studies conditioned stimuli in dogs. There is a part in the beginning of the novel where he's like chasing a dog amidst debris in after of a rocket strike with a toilet on his foot um, at this hospital at the white visitation he has a number of dogs as well as some humans it's implied that he performs tests on we actually get inside the mind of a couple of the dogs throughout the novel um, and are able to see the dog experience of being a psychological test but he, he just he's a he's a Pavlovian through and through he believes that there is a clear connection between cause and effect that if you create a stimuli it'll create a response and so Pointsman is well aware of this Dr. Jamps experiment on Slothrop he's well aware of Slothrop he sends people to investigate Slothrop it is Edward Pointsman's statistician, Roger Mexico, who does the distributions that show that Slothrop's map and the rocket strikes are directly correlated. He's, he's really kind of masterminding this attempt to figure out what the connection between Slothrop's penis and what is in the sky is, because he is the type of person who believes that there has to be a cause and an effect. And so he wants to use Pavlovian conditioning to determine the stimulus that affects Slothrop. He wants to figure out what exactly is causing Slothrop's penis to predict rocket strikes because there has to be some order there has to be some reasoning or logic that is governing this coincidence um and i think his quest that ultimately ends in him stealing slothrop to perform tests on him um, i think i think his quest to figure out what the the cause and the effect of slothrop's penis and the v2 rockets are is kind of talked about within the, the large majority of this first part of the novel 
in the sense that we kind of see this world that is incredibly disordered, that is has um, usurped the standard laws in which we assume exist. We it has kind of torn it has shown itself to be a mutated version of reality where things are not linear, things don't make sense. The world does not operate according to scientific principles and as a result the humans in this world have to make sense of what is going on. I think a large part of this disorder is due to World War II. Um, this takes place as I've mentioned before in 1944-1945. The war is kind of in its closing days um, and so with that we've had years of war so like years of living in this um, incredibly restricted economic and social situation we also of of war so there's rations there's you know there's um, social changes as a result of the war everyone's kind of going in on this war effort but also more importantly we've had years of living in the horror of war particularly world war ii which i think even in 2023 i think we we still think about as being perhaps one of the most horrific and the most horrific display of human immorality um of human of, of human evil i know that um I, know, I do know kind of with postmodernism as well as like post-structuralism and just a general cultural response to World War II, um, looking back on it 70 or 80 years now, uh, 80 years since it happened, we kind of are able to see that this war and what occurred during this war really destabilized a lot of the human understanding of God, of morality, of the projection of human life. Um, I think I think a lot of us still, I know myself, I still am largely hopeful that humanity is heading in the right direction, that, you know, progress is on our side. But World War II and the genocide that occurs during the Holocaust, the deployment and development of nuclear weapons by the US against Japan, the rise of um, the Nazi party, Nazi ideology. I, I think it, for the most part, shows a genuine uncomfortability at least it, it shows a genuine like it, it shows that human progress is not always good um, because World War II saw a lot of technology be developed it saw a lot of it kind of saw this modern period that we since the beginning of the Enlightenment had believed had been in favor of human progress it kind of showed that that all that progress was actually just creating a lot of suffering 
and creating a lot of evil. And um, in part, I, as a postmodern author, I think Pynchon is writing about that. I think there's a reason why he chose to set this novel in World War II. Um, as someone who was a child during World War II, who's kind of grown up in this culture following World War II, um, him and a lot of other postmodern authors are kind of really dealing with the intellectual challenge of living in a world that no longer makes sense, that no longer seems ordered, that no longer seems to have some divine hand guiding it, some spirit of progress leading it to a better future. Um, I think I think he's very well aware of that, and I think that's a big part of this novel is to talk about how humans make sense of a world that doesn't make sense. And I think World War II shows that the world doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. Um, one example of that is with the V2 rocket. I mean, you have technology that has advanced to break the sound barrier that has changed the very mechanics of fighting a war um, where those on the other side of the bomb don't see planes in the sky they don't hear sirens before they're hit they don't know what's coming they also can't hear it coming because it fa travels faster than the, the speed of sound so we have developed technology as humans that can cause greater suffering that we can't control or predict um, in our current historical moment in the US the occurring the, the persistent occurrence of gun violence in schools, in places of business, is truly horrifying because it does feel entirely random, but also, too, because there is little that a human can do to protect themselves from a gun. Um, there's there's little that we, we can do to protect ourselves from that technology. It is, it's meant to hurt, it's meant to kill, and it, it does it really effectively. And those on the receiving end have to live with this anxiety of knowing that technology could easily be yield, wielded by humans to cause harm for almost no reason. Um, and I think the V2 rocket symbolizes that in a lot of ways um it symbolizes it in a lot of ways that i think in the modern period as a reader i know i'm still working through um, i tend to have a, as someone who works in a school i live with a lot of anxiety about the threat of having to deal with gun violence in a workplace um for just trying to do my job of having to deal with the threat that it's possible that I have to deal with a very violent, scary situation. Um, it's also living in a world with the war in Ukraine, with Russia and North Korea. Um, we have to live with this time of nuclear war. Um, there have been moments within the last year or so where it's felt that the next world war is really imminent and I think we all kind of acknowledge subconsciously that the next world war will be nuclear 
and <laughs> therefore will just kill us all. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think we have to, I know I deal with a lot of that anxiety about the threat of technology, about the the possibility that technology could attack me, that could harm me, that it could end my life for no reason, for no purpose, and there's little that I can do about it. And I think the characters in this novel, they're all dealing with that stress. I mean, Slothrop himself um, is has developed this deep despair about um, these mass killings created by the V2. Raja Mexico has describes that he thinks of this war as his mother. It is the only thing and the only reality that he knows anymore. And he's like super depressed um, and hopelessly obsessed with this girl as a result because he just feels hopeless in this situation. Um, there are people who talk about how the V2 is only attacking poor people. Um, the, the V2 is purposely hurting those who do not have power um, while salvaging those who do have power, which is kind of a, a very ripe critique about how you know war is fought by young men who have no say in the decision but is caused by white old men who do not have to anything at stake um you know war and oppression tends to hurt those who are oppressed and you know we there there's little that you can do about it you are just kind of stuck to deal with it and so i think i think this novel is very much concerned with the anxiety that and the angst that kind of arises of living in a world that has progressed to a technological stage where threats are real, they're unseen, and they're incredibly destructive. Um, I think this novel is also, with that, talking about how we as a society um, need to truly find a way to make sense of that and when the world has kind of shown itself to be chaotic and disordered we need to try to find ways to order it we need to try to find some logic some re rationality that supports our understanding of this world and the way that it works and the way that it is functioning so that we can make sense of it and therefore cope with the anxiety that we feel um so in the like in the novel i mean we have pointsman who believes that you know there has to be a connection between slothrop's sexual conquests and this v2 rocket strikes there has to be some cause and effect that's occurring you know he's out there and he can feel them coming days in advance somehow whether it's psychosis whether it's uh, hatred against women, whether it's um, some link or connection between his penis and the phallus, the phallicness of the rocket, there has to be some connection that is ordering it. And if we can just study Slothrop, if we can steal Slothrop and 
figure out what that is, then we can stop the rocket and we can control the rocket. Now we can actually stop it. We can control the rocket and we can control where it strikes and we can yield it to accomplish our own purpose. Um, we don't have to be afraid of it anymore. And um, I think with how much weird shit happens in this novel that we kind of take at face value, um, I think that becomes a very prominent underlying idea that kind of runs through everything. I mean, as the reader, you're kind of just expected to take a lot of really weird stuff at face value. So for example, um, within the first 30 pages, we meet Captain Pirate Prentice, who is some intelligence officer who's working in London alongside Slothrop and Pointsman. Um, this character has the ability to see into the mind of other people and as a result can flush like he can take away their anxieties by promoting other thoughts in their minds so he in either a fantasy or real life is charged with a is, is tasked alongside a character known as Lord Latherard Osmo to establish liaison with a giant adenoid attacking London. Um, Lord Blatherard Osmo later mysteriously is, is found having been mysteriously suffocated in a bathtub full of tapioca pudding. Um, Pirate Prentice also has a hothouse on top of his apartment building where he grows bananas in some incredibly fertile soil that somehow arose but he had been driven by despair because of the wartime bananas shortage so he built this hothouse on his roof and now partakes in this ritual with his friends where he makes these incredibly decadent and extravagant banana breakfasts where he basically puts bananas in every possible breakfast food that exists. We also have situations like um, Edward Pointsman, who is chasing this dog. He gets his toilet, he gets his foot caught in a toilet. So he's running around with his foot in the toilet and he runs upon this dog who speaks to him in a German accent. He says, you were expecting maybe Lassie. Um, we have a situation with a character named Katie who is Dutch, but also working for the Germans in some extent. And she has willfully gotten involved in a BDSM like Hansel and Gretel situation with a Captain Blissero where they like worship the oven and engage in very violent and self-depreciating sexual practices um, as a way to save them from war and the absolute rule of chance. Um, we have this situation where Slothrop eats a bunch of British candy with mayonnaise and all these other gross things in it. Um, 
it's just there's a lot of there's a lot of nonsense that occurs in this in this novel i mean this novel is situated in a world that is incredibly nonsensical that does not operate according to the standard understanding of the world as we have it i mean you don't dogs don't talk you can't build a hothouse for bananas in a room you cannot nearly make as much food with bananas as um prentice does but it's this world that it doesn't make any sense and it, it doesn't operate according to our understanding of how the world operates and i think that's very intentional i think this conversation about um pointsman trying to establish a cause and effect within a world that is already incredibly different from what would be considered normal is a very intentional statement about both the immorality that arises due to war but also about the prevalence of chance the prevalence of chaos and how humans are kind of stuck trying to find meaning in that world i think one thing that i really like about gravity's rainbow and one thing that even though this novel is a, f a pain to read sometimes and i don't always get it i think what i do like about it so much is that it's basic idea the ideas that the novel is working with this idea of cause and effect this idea of linearity this idea of rationality of purpose um is as a reader you kind of have to deal with it itself you have characters who are you know here in this world that doesn't make a lot of sense they're trying to make sense of it through various means and it's not working and you as a reader can acknowledge that it's not working but also too this novel is structured and written in such a way that the narrative doesn't make any sense the narrative doesn't operate according to what conventional um, storytelling is supposed to the the sentences are written in grammar in a grammar that is not standard english that does not have subjects that does not use verbs that does not always say a complete thought or even relate to the sentence beforehand and you as a reader are kind of forced to make meaning out of this narrative that doesn't make any sense that is itself chaotic um there's a lot of a lot of people and by a lot of people i mean people who i have talked i feel like one person said it once and then everyone just kind of repeats it as you know this trite saying but there is this idea that gravity's rainbow is kind of like the remnant it's a story that has been exploded by a bomb and you just read through the remnants um i don't know if i said that in a way that makes sense but you you do get the sense that there is just an absolute chaotic assembly it, when you first read it, it feels like a chaotic assembly. It feels as though that there is not much connection between what you read. Um, but, and so I, I do agree to in a sense, I think this novel does kind of put on that facade of 
of chaos and as a reader you kind of are forced to maneuver through that you're, you're forced to make sense of this novel and these sentences that don't always make sense but what i i've noticed throughout this reading and what i think is really interesting is that yes there are a lot of sections to this story that make that do not make sense there are a lot of parts that are maybe on the surface nonsensical um it is on the surface you know it it, it changes a lot there's there's changes that are occurring that are not announced that you can't predict that you can't know um but despite that there is a logic of linearity and rationality that does kind have that does kind of unintentionally govern the story i mean we have this whole situation with slothrop and we have these characters that we follow and although i do not doubt that thomas pynchon took a lot of drugs while he wrote this novel and he tried to be as under the influence and as stylistically um, vague as possible you do see that even when we try to or even when we might pronounce the world as you know being chaotic as being ruled by absolute chance as being unable to be made sense of there's still an underlying assumption that we can make sense of it i think that there is some linearity associated with it, that there is some sort of logocentrism that we can find in it. Um, and I think it, I just think this novel is a really interesting example of how we cannot escape that enlightenment rationality that is kind of embedded in us, that the world has to make sense. Um, and I, I'm not going to say that I think the enlightenment hit it all on the head I think I, I mean I have read I have read a number of essays by Derrida by Foucault um, I have and I do know Wittgenstein and I do know Nietzsche and I do know Roman Barthes and I know a lot about this notion of absurdity of um, deconstruction of maybe this problem of language this idea that we can't know we can never know what is happening or know what another person is saying because of language because there are no there is no logocentrism there is no center there is no truth with a capital T um, and if there was we couldn't communicate it or understand it through language and I do think in a lot of ways that those thinkers have gotten it right um, I think I do think that enlightenment rationality while being incredibly helpful for putting on like creating the scientific revolution for you know establishing principles of which we can observe the world and develop knowledge and understanding i do think it has its limits and i do think that it did not get it right in a lot of ways with that being said, though, I do always find it incredibly interesting, though, when we have situations where we are talking about how the world doesn't make sense 
or we can't know about the world and we say those things through the tools of enlightenment irrationality that we are directly fighting against um, the ultimate paradox for me is when you have theorists and writers who write about how um, you know for example Roland Barthes essay the death of the author you can never know what the author meant because of language and the inability for language to possess a signified and so you have this idea that you can never know what the author meant but my literary theorist professor can tell me what Roland Barthes meant when he wrote that essay and I, there's only one correct interpretation of it. Those types of examples always make me kind of kind of laugh, not laugh maybe, but they always make me kind of happy to think about those kind of things. It always is kind of a fun little game. And I definitely see that a lot in Pinscher and I see him trying to subvert a lot of literature's expectations while simultaneously upholding a lot of literary conventions that um, we have kind of established as commonplace and normal. That being said, I do think he does an absolutely fantastic job of really deconstructing um, these notions of, of what a narrative is, of what a rational story is, of how the world works, of how we make sense of the world. And I, I do, as I said before, really love reading through his work and experiencing alongside the characters this like really complex and anxiety inducing feeling of trying to make meaning within a world or a text that just does not make sense. Um, and so I think uh, particularly in part one in general, um, there's this really, really big emphasis on cause and effect, on this attempt to make sense of cause and effect. And to kind of return back to um, my discussion of the plot, Pointsman eventually ends up stealing Slothrop, taking him to St. Veronica's Hospital, where he Slothrop has this incredibly long psychotic, not psychotic, hallucination of his time at a bar in Massachusetts where he for one part if you've seen train spotting he dives into a toilet um, there's a scene in train spotting where they do exactly that it was directly inspired by the scene with the Kenosha kid from Gravity's Rainbow but this entire scene is um, set up as a way of like changing the emphasis and the meaning of a single sentence. That sentence is, you never did the Kenosha kid. And so he changes, um, it's this whole section where Slothrop's awareness is changing the text of the sentence, you never did the Kenosha kid to mean different things. Um, I, I, st I read it and I still find it to be hilarious. It's so funny. It's such a funny play on language and it's a joke. Um, it's a funny joke in my opinion. But yes, yeah, so we have, he's captured at St. Veronica's. He is, has all these tests done by him, by the people of Pisces. Um, he's eventually let go. 
he goes and meets Darlene, tries a bunch of those English candies that are really gross and has a really awful time with it. They sleep together. He experiences the bomb blast, has the erection. They sleep together as it goes. Um, meanwhile, there's this like growing concern by pointsmen of like really needing to figure out what exactly the connection between Slothrop's penis and this this s stimulus of the rocket is. Pointsman is the one who brings it up. He's kind of the one that spearheads that whole discussion. And then eventually, as the um, the part as the part one kind of ends, we kind of lose track of Slothrop. The last time we see Slothrop, he's with Darlene. Um, and so we see a lot of pointsmen, we see a lot of Roger Mexico, we see this character of Spectro and Katie and Lini, who all kind of make their returns later on in the story. But um, oh, we meet this, this ex-colonial army for the Germans from the Herreros, I believe it's called, who are active in a secret weapons program called the Schwarz Commando there's just black command in Germany German I believe it's command I know it's black I don't know what commando means in German I would assume it's probably something related to command but um we and we just kind of see that um pointsman in particular and Roger and Jessica and even pirate to an extent are all becoming increasingly paranoid about this war about what this war means, about what this war is doing to them, and they're kind of becoming increasingly, um, increasingly committed to determining what is going on with Slothrop. And so, as point as part one ends, we um, we just kind of end on this like really this note that this. This war has just ruined everything. And I want to kind of end my discussion with part one with um, this quote from Roger Mexico on the last page. He is, I don't, as I have mentioned before, he's fallen in love with this woman named Jessica. To provide more context for their relationship, they have, they, I don't actually know what Jessica does, but they have this place that they go to where they sleep together, but they, and Roger and Jessica both love each other, but Jessica is engaged to this woman, that's from this guy, called Jeremy, who's also referred to as the Beaver, and um, although Roger, although they both love each other, they don't spend a lot of time together, and Roger is becoming con increasingly concerned that Jessica is going to leave him. He's increasingly despaired that Jessica is going to leave him once the war is over. Um, that if she does leave him, he doesn't know what he's going to do. And so if he, sa he says at the very end of part one, he says, if the Rockets don't get her, they're still her lieutenant. Damned Beaver slash Jeremy is the war. He is every assertion, assertion the fucking war has ever made, that we are meant for work and government, for austerity 
and you shall take priority over love, dreams, the spirit, the senses, and the other second-class trivia that are found among the idle and the mindless hours of the day. So, I, I, I do really like Pynchon's approach to war, um, his depiction of war, and his kind of discussion of the economic and political nature of war as this fight for intelligence, this fight for business, and how regular people suffer both in war but also in my personal interpretation capitalist economies. I think there is a thread of Marxist theory within Pitchin's depiction of war and his depiction of government and his depiction of these spies working for the governments to stop the war um, because he does in a lot of ways kind of upend and depict this he, he does upend this theory that war is a battle for of good against evil um, I think there's a really common narrative in the US that war is for fighting for freedom it's fighting for justice it's fighting for what's right and i think this first part of gravity's rainbow shows a london that is incredibly desolate that's incredibly dark that's incredibly despair ridden and he puts the blame on the war and on this technology that's developed but he also puts the blame on, in my interpretation, this ideology that humans are meant to work, they're meant to um, keep capitalist societies running, that we're meant for work and government and for austerity, and that we should really stop putting our time and attention to loves and dreams and the spirit and the senses and these second class trivias that or hobbies that we we have when we're not working you know when we have time off when we're not focused on you know going to work and bettering the economy and becoming a stronger nation um i think this notion is anti-capitalist in nature i think this is a notion that says that um humans are meant for more than working we're meant for doing more than just going to work every day and making money and living in the society and watching tv when we're done i think we're meant to love and we're meant to dream and we're meant to to do things and i, I do find it really interesting that the character that most emulates that is roger mexico who is incredibly nihilistic and incredibly depressed and incredibly hopeless but um I think it says something though about about what it means to live in a society that is capable of this type of violence. And I think that's kind of where I I kind of see Pynchon's depiction of war in general and the horrors of war as kind of placing a critique. Um, at one part he says that you know, war is buying and celebrating. It's a, a, a celebration of markets. He talks about how 
the war is there's one part where like the war needs electricity um it's an electric monopoly this idea of like capital w war caught like um that is controlled by capital f firms capital g governments capital t they's like it's controlled by this um sphere of higher of high class people very powerful people who are unnamed and who are controlling and manipulating all the pieces um and i think his novel this novel definitely kind of goes into the paranoia of being someone of being a laborer in um a capitalist system i think in slothrop's case he is obsessed and concerned that there are there's a capital t they who is dictating all of his moves and all of his lives and everything that's happening they're after him and they know what's going to happen and um that develops as the novel goes on and i'll talk about it in later episodes but i think as far as the first part is concerned we do see that there is a capital t they like there is pointsman there is prentice there are these people in charge working in the government who are in fact manipulating circumstances to test slothrop to use slothrop for uh, the gain of the government for the gain of the allies for the gain of the economy and so there's this idea that of the, there's this general feeling that like the laborer is having to suffer because of these this, this, these powerful people but also that while it's incredibly difficult during wartime i think it's also incredibly difficult living within a society that is capable of occupying that position in war um, i think that's one reason why as i read this i think a lot about those situations because i do live in a world in a country that is capable of doing those things that is capable of becoming that type of capital t they that government that unnamed powerful being that i can't control that i have to respond to there's this general feeling as i've had to make decisions about you know what I, do i want to do for a career how am i going to make money that i'm living within this world that is nameless and faceless that I can't control, that I can't work out against, that is just powerful. And I, there's a sense of paranoia that's associated with this process of living within a society that isn't no longer human, that is no longer capable of recognizing the humanity within the, of the people who live there, as well as also the humanity of people outside of that country. There's this like general sense of like fear that and I think it's like really well captured in this general anxiety about the rise of AI, about this threat of AI, this like fear that technology or governments or just systems in general are capable of manipulating humans and laborers to such an extent that we are treated like, um, we are treated as as robots we are treated as laborers we are we are 
dehumanized to such an extent that we become mere numbers working in an economy that we have lost our humanity and our purpose in life is to work and to keep these systems alive and we are meant to sacrifice and suffer so that these systems are prolonged and those in power stay in power and we have to put aside our dreams and our loves and our our hobbies to those hours of the day that we get to ourselves I, I just find that it, it does emulate a lot with how I feel the general anxiety and angst that kind of consumes my day-to-day -day as someone working and living within a capitalist economy um, and I think for me it, it just goes back to show that despite Pynchon's weirdness despite the sections of just of sex of weird situations of maybe less than ideal depictions of women or um, discussions about women that um, there is a sense to pension that is is really cognizant of and like is a direct critique of the current system in which we live that is a, a direct critique against this system and the rules and the constructs that govern our world and that it is it is a response in some ways to how those systems control people and as a reader you kind of are able to experience and process those feelings alongside of it that is all that i really have to say at this current moment about part one of Gravity's Rainbow. I will be continuing on with this novel with separate episodes on parts two, three, and four. With that being said, I appreciate anyone who has chosen to listen to this podcast and has endured what became rambling for some little bit. I, I hope that it was meaningful and enjoyable. And I, if you ever have any questions or about what something that I've said, if you might have a comment on something that I said, or if there are parts of aspects of part one that I did not cover in full that you wish I would have discussed more so, please reach out through a comment or through the reply tab below. Thank you again for listening. Until next time, this is Daniel Macko with the Unretired English Major Podcast.